Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based here in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. We are recording this on Friday, September 16th, 2022. In this week's episodes, we will be discussing testimony beginning in the infamous Pike County massacre that left eight family members dead. Also, Alex Jones' defamation trial continues in Connecticut, where Jones could face uh, substantial damages. Plus, Nicholas Cruz's defense team suddenly rests their case out of nowhere in the Parkland shooter's death penalty hearing. And finally, R. Kelly's conviction in a Chicago federal court on charges of child pornography and enticement of a minor to engage in sexual activity. Today, we are joined by Dina Dahl, a corporate transactional attorney, trial consultant, mediator, and legal analyst on the Law and Crime Network. Dina, welcome. Thanks for having me. You've been on the show before, and for listeners who are not familiar with you, could you give us a little bit about your background and your current practice? Sure. So I'm, I'm based here in LA, along with you, and I uh, started my career at Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher, and then co-founded the law firm Dolomir and Ely, uh, my husband and I. And I got a chance to take time off to be with my kids and raise my kids. And I do trial consultants now, so that way I do still have time for them. And and I'm a legal analyst. I'm on a variety of different media, and I, I love being able to communicate about the law. My background before law school was actually journalism, so it's kind of combining my two loves there. Oh, fantastic. And I know you follow these cases closely, so we're, we're really interested to hear your, your hot takes on some of these things. So let's jump right in. Uh, we're talking about uh, going first to Cincinnati, Ohio. The murder trial of George Wagner IV continues for the execution-style slayings that left eight dead and shocked a rural Ohio community in 2016. Wagner faces eight counts of aggravated murder along with other counts for his part in the massacre that left multiple members of the Rodin family dead. Jake Wagner, George Billy Wagner III, Angela Wagner, and George Wagner IV were all charged in the murders. George's younger brother, Jake, 
and Mother Angela pled guilty for their role in the killings and are expected to testify against George in this trial. The majority of the victims were shot multiple times, with the Wagners allegedly using homemade silencers to kill the victims in their sleep. Prosecutors allege the killings were motivated by a custody battle, this is just so tragic to me, over the daughter of Jake Wagner and Hannah Roden, with Roden refusing to sign papers that would allow shared custody of the couple's daughter. Pike County Court Judge Randy Deering is allowing witnesses to choose, and this is interesting, if they want their testimony to be filmed prior to testifying. Reportedly, most of the witnesses have opted out of being filmed, including the Pike County Sheriff Tracy Evans, along with two of his deputies. So, Dina, let's talk about this. First of all, I've never seen this type of situation before where the judge says, I'm going to allow recording but I'm also going to allow each witness to decide on their own whether or not they want to opt out of it. And my understanding is they can opt out. They can say, well, I only want to be audio recorded uh, or I'll allow myself to be both video and audio recorded or none at all. And, and reporters are still inside the courtroom to tell us what's going on. But what, what do you make of this kind of bizarre decision uh, on the, the judge's part? How do you think that's affecting the trial? I mean, I think you're right. It is bizarre. It sounds like it's because of the state law there, which specifically says witnesses can opt out. And who knows, uh, maybe more states will kind of come up with a similar law. But the fact is, the reason why we're even allowed to have cameras in the courtroom is, as you know, our proceedings are public. The idea is that our courtrooms are public so people can know what our justice system is. And actually, it's for the benefit of the defendant. That's why we have a public system is because that way, we have accountability if somebody's going to have a fair trial. So I think picking and choosing, I mean, although they themselves are picking and choosing, but having a trial televised where only certain witnesses come, I don't know if that necessarily um, helps that goal of people seeing the trial, because quite frankly, they're not seeing all of the trial. And let's say, for instance, all of the prosecutor witnesses were saying they wanted to be on trial, but none of the defense witnesses. It's not necessarily happening that way, but let's say it does. You know, the public may come away with a very different understanding of that trial because of this kind of cherry picking of witnesses. So although I know it's um, why she was able to do this because of the state law, I think it kind of like circumvents the whole purpose of having cameras in a courtroom. I agree with you. I I think that we should have a push towards more of this transparency, towards more cameras in the courtroom. And I realize that that does have an effect on trials. Obviously, the the amount of kind of, I've experienced this myself, the amount of kind of publicity that you put on a case can change the whole dynamic of it. But I think it's important for our overall, like you said, trust in the system and an understanding of transparency of what's going on. For instance, one thing that has always frustrated me is the federal system doesn't allow cameras at all. And so you get these trials and the only way that we really understand what's going on with them is through you know, the court reporters and then these courtroom sketches of what's taking place. And and it does lead to a people, I, I think the public by and large, kind of having a little distrust of what is what's happening and is what's being told to me actually taking place. I'm wondering, could, could they have solved that here by just saying, listen, if you don't want to be on camera, you don't have to be on camera. The cameras are going to still be there, but they may not be recording you. Yes, and I think that's probably essentially what is happening, that they probably turn them on and off, you know, when the certain witnesses come on. And, you know, it's interesting, like we talked to, like I was saying, the purpose of the public is for the defendant. And, you know, O.J. Simpson, we know, is the original TV trial. And 
he was acquitted. If he hadn't been acquitted, I think we may have seen a major shift away from cameras in the courtroom. But it was kind of that first real experiment and he was acquitted. And, and so that maybe continued this idea of cameras in the courtroom. And then we see Kyle Rittenhouse, hugely watched case. Yeah. He was also acquitted. So the idea is really, can a defendant get a fair trial in the courtroom? And we've seen over and over again, where that yes they still can get it and it's yeah. i just think too i mean you know the johnny depp trial was also not criminal but it was one of the most watched trials again in a while and i got so many really interesting legal questions from that people were really you know wanting to know the intricacies of hearsay and all these rules that why shouldn't people be more educated about our legal system so i'm a huge a fan of it. And I think here, especially people were really upset about the sheriff not being willing to be on the camera because yeah. he is a public figure. He does public press conferences. I think his testimony was really about logistics. Uh, so the fact that he didn't want to be on camera, um, I, I, I think that was a bad decision on his part because the optics looked really bad. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to be my next question to you. I don't understand it. I don't understand why he did it. But I feel like of all the people that should be the most transparent, it would be law enforcement because you're, you're, you, you, the, to your point, right, is this should be kind of benefiting us as a society to understand that this is transparent and what's taking place is not, you know, nobody's being railroaded here. What about that with law enforcement in particular choosing not to be uh, recorded? And the, and the funny thing about it is, there's still reporters, so they're still going to report on what was taking place. But there's something weird about the fact that you're like, I don't I know that this is going to be public, but I don't want to be recorded in what I'm saying in court. Yeah, to me, that is the worst because you can yeah. see maybe some of the other witnesses, especially a murder trial. There might be some fear involved or, you know, they don't want to have uh, people, you know, threaten them or something like that. But a, a law enforcement per, in particular, I think it's a little bit scary to think about it because of this idea that we this is considered a check on our system. The reason why it's public is it's a check on our system. So to have law enforcement, where nowadays they're recorded all the time, right? I mean, with body cam uh, cameras and all that kind of stuff, even if the sheriff maybe wasn't in the field, we really uh, want transparency. And so for them to say, we're willing to testify really against this defendant, right? We're willing to put this person away for jail for the rest of their life, but you know we don't want the public to see us doing it. Oh, that just looks really bad. Yeah. And I don't actually see, to your point, the purpose, because it's all getting transcribed anyway. Uh, so that to me is a really bad just PR decision, yeah. if nothing it's, else. It's it's fuel for conspiracy theorists, right? Where in a situation where you don't need it, you're just adding fuel to that fire that people are already kind of skeptical of law enforcement and the judicial system to begin with. Um, last question on this, and I, and it hasn't happened yet, so I'm asking you to kind of speculate a little bit. But we're, we anticipate to hear from uh, family members of the defendant, him, perhaps his brother, even his mother. They both testified guilty in the idea that they would uh, testify. What do you what effect do you think that'll have on the trial? You know, to have family members testify against a defendant is very big, really, yeah. because there's going to be a lot of evidence against it, right? And prosecution is not going to bring a case unless they have really a strong amount of evidence. And usually the one 
um, thing a defendant can show is people going up on the stand and saying, oh, this is not somebody who would do something like that, like a family member. And in this case, it's the opposite. It's the family member saying, um, no, he did do this. He was a part of it, especially his mother. You know, people would think what mother would lie about that about their son. If anything, you would think a mother would lie about the reverse. So I think that's going to be very compelling to the jury. It is true, though, that the brother who's testifying against him, you know, he was the one that shot five people, right? He's already kind of admitted to that. Whether or not the defense can say, really, this is just so self-serving on his part. Um, the defendant didn't do any of the shootings. And of course, they want to put the blame on him. Of course, he wanted to avoid the death sentence. You know. He may not be able to go into necessarily all of that, but I think that is the defense's um, best hope. But it's certainly very hard to argue that both their mother and the son are just completely, um, you know, making this up. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, that is, that is usually the way the defense would handle something like this is to say, well, didn't you get some sort of sweetheart deal? And isn't that why you're testifying? In fact, aren't you the one who's mostly responsible? But that all dynamic changes when you've got family members willing to testify against someone. So that'll be uh, very interesting. If it does happen, we expect it to happen. And so we'll keep a close watch on this case. Let's turn to Waterbury, Connecticut, where Alex Jones' second trial of three lawsuits continues in Connecticut weeks after he was ordered to pay nearly $50 million to families of the Sandy Hook massacre. Jones is accused of calling the 2012 Sandy Hook shooting a hoax. The attack left 20 children and six educators dead. The plaintiffs argued that Jones's rallying cry asking his viewers to, quote unquote, investigate the shooting led to cyber stalking, harassment and even threats to the families of the victims of the shooting. Jones was already found liable for defamation both in Texas and now in Connecticut, with the jury here only set to decide how much he will pay in damages. In August, a Texas jury ordered Jones and his company Free Speech Systems to pay Sandy Hook parents Neil Heslin and Scarlett Lewis $4.1 million in compensatory damages, but get this, $45.3 million in punitive damages. However, Texas has a cap of $750,000 per count of non-economic punitive damages. The plaintiffs in that case are arguing that the cap doesn't apply. So we'll see how that all plays out. Meanwhile, Jones's company has filed for bankruptcy, though he testified during his trial in Texas that Infowars makes nearly $80 million a year in annual revenue, while a plaintiff's accounting expert has reported Jones and his companies could be worth as much as $270 million. A key distinction between the two cases could be the limits placed on punitive damages in Connecticut. Connecticut normally has stringent caps on punitive damages. However, the plaintiffs also brought a claim under the Connecticut Unfair Trade Practices Act, which would remove the cap. Okay, first question here, Dina, is the case, this case, rather than Texas, is being tried 20 miles away from where the shooting occurred. How do you think that affects the jurors' uh, award in this case, if they do have one? Um, it being them being so much a part of that community of where this tragedy took place. I mean, they do try in jury selection to eliminate jurors who, you know, are so biased, right? right. Because they were impacted. And so there were there are going to be jury or there were jury questions to try to eliminate jurors who maybe can't be impartial in the case. But to your point, I mean, this was so close to when this happened and they 
it's almost impossible for them that them not to have felt it in a way that somebody across the country wouldn't have. Although this was really a national story. And I think a lot of people in the country um, would say that they felt impacted by it. But it, I, I do think that um, they probably sympathize because they went through it with the families. They may have actually heard more about the harassment than the rest of us did. You know, we all heard about the event. I didn't actually realize that the families were getting harassed until um, these lawsuits came up. But those uh, people who lived nearby, they may have, um, you know, heard the stories. I think some of the harassment happened at like, you know, the 10K race fundraiser, you know, so that, that may have been more well known in the community. And so to that extent, it might be a little bit easier for them to prove the damages because they may have had some knowledge about that. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, it, it, there is something about it taking place just even geographically closer, even if it's not that it affected your personal life or those of your friends. But I, I remember, um, I mean, like you said, Sandy Hook, the entire nation felt this and, and experienced it. But you remember the tragic kind of San Bernardino shootings that we had out here uh, several years ago. It, you know, San Bernardino is not what I would call all that close to Los Angeles, but it is still in California and geographically closer to us. And I do feel like we, as as residents of Southern California, maybe paid more close attention, uh, 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 felt the impact a little bit more. And I wonder if that those reverberations are, are going to affect this jury. And, and we're going to find out soon enough um, when they do get an award here. Something I, I'd like you to help us to understand is that this is, a, again, another case where Liability is not an issue. So he's already been kind of defaulted as far as liability. So the jurors going in here are already being told, you don't have to decide whether or not defamation took place. You're only here to decide damages, uh, if any, that should be awarded. I guess my questions are, first, have you ever dealt with something like that? And and then two, what I wonder, does how does that affect a jury going in when it's like they already know this person is liable? You know, this person has done what they're accused of doing now we're just trying to decide how to how to compensate the families and how to perhaps even punish the the defendant in this case. What are your thoughts? Well, I think it is unusual. I mean, sometimes um, clients do default on a judgment for strategic reasons, uh, depending on kind of how frivolous the case is. Is it going to cost more to defend it? But in a situation like this, it's actually pretty shocking he defaulted because of how much he is at risk financially. But, you know, the fact of the matter is he probably couldn't prove the truth of his statement. So what's the point of defending it at that point? So it makes sense to that end, because I think his uh, his lies were so obvious, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of um, how the jury is going to affect it, you know, time and time again, I am always so impressed with our jury system. I think jurors do an excellent job of really narrowing down to the exact legal um, issue at you know, in question. And I think they're going to do a good job of just looking at the damages because sure, somebody can be liable for something, but if they weren't damaged and you can't prove that damage, you still don't get very much money. So I think that they will have actually quite enough to look at just with respect to damages. And I don't think it's going to really affect them that he was already kind of defaulted and liable in that, in that respect. Interesting, interesting. Um, and to your point, uh, what they have heard so far uh, for several days now 
has been a, a representative of Jones's company that talked about, and one of the things I thought was interesting was she was testifying as far as how traffic was driven, and I'm talking about internet traffic, uh, was driven to the website, how they tracked it, in other words, what they knew was getting attention and what wasn't, and then how they monetized off of that. And I believe what they're trying to do is to connect the dots here is that they realized, or someone, Jones himself perhaps, realized that the Sandy Hook and all of these salacious comments he was making about that that horrible um, shooting was getting a lot of attention, which then turned into a lot of money. And therefore, the argument being from the plaintiffs, you need to punish them for that. What do you, what do you think that effect of that kind of testimony will have on the uh, the jurors in this case? Well, this is what I thought was so fascinating about this Connecticut case and why it's so important, even more so than the Texas one, is because, as you said, the Texas one has a cap on punitive. But under the Connecticut, this Unfair Trade Practices Act, there is no cap. So this case could truly make him like insolvent beyond bankruptcy and reorganization. Like this could take away all of his money. And the interesting thing is it's possible that they may have had a hard time proving liability under the Unfair Trade Practices Act, in addition to defamation. But they're past that point. So now, as to you said, just Damages. And the question is, is did he sell more merchandise when he told these lies? That's really the question. And then the how many more pieces of merchandise and the judge, because he's already, you know, still not um, cooperating in some of these um you know, not discovery at this point, but he was still not forthcoming in the information. You know, they were asking for certain data, the plaintiffs, and he still wasn't giving it this. And the judge said that his attorneys could not argue that he did not profit at all from the statements. That's pretty big. She already made that ruling. So now it's just a matter of, you know, how much basically did he profit? And it's, probably not going to be that hard for them to show this connection between, as you say, you know, this was very salacious. I mean, this was a na- national tragedy. And then him saying these really uh, shocking things, I'm sure did move traffic. And um, not only they're going to have the compensatory, the actual damages to that, but this is now where the punitive is going to come in, is to say what you did was so egregious. We want to make it that you or no one else wants to ever do this again. And that punitive can be as high as they want it to be because there is no cap. And that's why this case is very interesting. I agree with you. I I, I think... I was not shocked with the number that came out of Texas, and I wouldn't be shocked if we got a number that high or higher here in Connecticut. And, and one thing that was surprising to me, though, was, I mean, I had heard of Infowars before all of this. I think everybody's always, you know, heard of Alex Jones, kind of this nut job on the, you know, the, the darker corners of the Internet. But this was an enterprise of a company, $80 million a year in revenue that they were generating. And if they're doing that, on the backs of lies that they know are lies that are hurting people that people who have already suffered unimaginable suffering from what they've gone through with their their kids and now they're being attacked by his you know cabal of crazies on the internet i think you i think you're right i think we could see some pretty big numbers out of this case let's turn to uh fort lauderdale florida 
where the defense has abruptly rested their case in Nicholas Cruz's sentencing hearing for the Parkland school shooting. After planning to call around 80 witnesses to testify in Cruz's defense, his lawyers unexpectedly rested their case Wednesday morning after calling a mere 25 witnesses. Cruz pled guilty in October of last year to 17 counts of first-degree murder for the 14 students and three staff members killed in the 2018 shooting. The move left prosecutors reeling and unable to deliver their rebuttal. The trial is slated to resume on September 27th. Circuit Court Judge Elizabeth Shearer was outraged, calling the defense's behavior, quote, the most uncalled for, unprofessional way to try a case. Jurors were outside the courtroom waiting to enter the, uh, when the defense rested their case, prompting Shearer to add to have 25 people march into court and be waiting as if it's some kind of a game. I have never experienced such a level of unprofessionalism in my career. Uh, we have some video of the judge's remarks that we're going to play for you right now. They're remarkable, so let's take a look at those. I just want to say this is the most uncalled for, unprofessional way to try a case. You you all knew about this, and even if you didn't make your decision till this morning, to have 22 people plus all of this staff and every attorney march into court, be waiting as if it's some kind of game now I have to send them home. The state's not ready. They're not going to have a witness ready. We have another day wasted. I, I just, I honestly, I have never experienced a level of unprofessionalism in my career. It, it's unbelievable. So, Judge, you asked, we had any pretrial matters. You asked us to be here at 9.15. We were here at 9.15 to discuss pretrial matters. I have been practicing in this county for 20 years. You know what, years. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to well, hear it. Judge, you're insulting me on the record in front of my client, and I believe that I should be able to okay, do Okay, you can do that later. You can put, make your record later. But you've been insulting me the entire trial. So blatantly taking your headphones off, arguing with me, um, storming out, coming late intentionally if you don't like my rulings. So quite frankly, this has been long overdue. So please be seated. You can receive the evidence. I will receive the evidence. And then you can um, put whatever you want on the record at the end. Dina, that was pretty shocking stuff there. Um, my first question for you, I guess, is I know you've got experience in courtrooms. Have you ever experienced something like this and experienced it, especially, too, in a case that has such kind of media attention with, uh, you know, uh, cameras in the courtroom daily? What are your thoughts? No, we have a variety of different types of judges, right? I mean, different judges have different personalities, and I have certainly seen a judge who's very harsh um, for maybe a lot less reason throughout trials, right? That happens all the time. You don't always have what, you, what we see, think, are, are judges on the bench. I think the judge here, though, had ample reason to be upset. And I was actually more taken with the response of the attorney because that attorney fired back in a way that we don't often see. I mean, at the end of the day, this is the judge's courtroom. The judge right. can do whatever they want. And as an attorney, you want to be respectful at all times. And if I'm getting dressed down by a judge, you know, I'm going to take it basically. Right. right. And so I was a little bit surprised about the reaction of uh, that attorney, to be quite honest. So, you know, I think that every little um, snippet that the public gets to see that it's not always like, you know, what you think on Law and Order or whatever, you know, it's not always goes 
by the book and and there's personalities involved you know we are just people lawyers are people judges are people but i i thought that the the back and forth uh, was more unusual. Usually yeah. um, the lawyer kind of takes it a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I, I, I mean, if you've ever done a trial and it's been a heated trial and it's gone on for a while, these kind of exchanges are going to happen. Uh, you know, people are gonna lose their tempers. People are getting tired. Uh, one thing I know for sure with judges is something that they're primarily concerned with are the jury. And are they wasting these people's time? They hate to have the jury sitting back there uh, waiting. And, you know, for the for the defense, I think that was what was most offensive to the judge is the defense knew they were going to risk their case. Why didn't they tell everybody ahead of time? Why did they, you know, bring everybody into court, including having the jurors all show up when they knew they weren't going to do anything that day? And I think that's what bothered the judge the most. Um, but it, it is, I think, a little... Ah, shocking is probably too uh, harsh of a word, but it was a little funny to me uh, because this judge knows that she's on camera too. Everybody's watching this. This isn't, you know, I've, I've done trials in an empty courtroom and nobody's watching it. Nobody cares. And the judge can lay into you and you're kind of like, whatever. But this is in front of the entire country, essentially. Uh, and for her to kind of lay into the the attorneys like that, and like you said, for the attorneys to kind of fire back was was at least good spectacle sport for everybody watching it. Um, but uh, I guess my other question is, why did the defense do this? Do you think this was on purpose? Was this a strategy? Are they trying to cross, catch the prosecution off guard and did it backfire on them? What were your thoughts? It has to be a strategy, I would think, because it's so different. You know, the difference between 25 witnesses, which they did, and 80, which they said they were going to do. I mean, we're not yeah. even talking about it being a close number. And it's possible they thought, you know, the rest of the witnesses that we are going to give aren't going to add anything new. Maybe they're going to supplement it, but there may be just uh, extra. And strategically, we would be better off putting the prosecution kind of off their game plan than we would adding additional witnesses who aren't gonna add much to our case. I mean, that's the only thing I think that makes sense because this is a capital um, case here, right? They have their client, whether or not he's gonna be put to death. You would think the defense would be very smart about their strategy. And if they thought these other witnesses could add more to their case, they would have done that rather than trying to um, kind of derail the prosecution's case. But the fact that they chose, I think they really chose, it was a conscious decision to to derail the prosecution's case. And they must have done it because they didn't think these other witnesses were going to add anything that important. But they, they knew that. They would have known yeah. that for a long time at this point. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with you that it seems like it was definitely premeditated. It, it, you, if, if they thought they were going to do this, the kind of professional way to handle it is say, listen, Your Honor, we've, we've sat down as a team strategically. We've decided we're going to rest our case early and give the court and everybody else a heads up. But they did want kind of, it seemed like they kind of wanted this gotcha moment, but it's like for what real short-term gain? I mean, the prosecution's gonna put their case together. The judge gave them the time. It's not like the prosecution had to rest their case early or something like that because they don't have any witnesses waiting in the hallway. Um, so it didn't really do anything other than, you know, essentially piss off the judge and everybody else in the courtroom for pulling these kind of shenanigans. It, it was a, it's a funny move to me. And I always wonder, 
because this whole whole case we know is about what are they trying to what issues are they trying to set up on appeal if he is given the the death penalty it's going to go to an appeal and is this another little wrinkle that they've thrown in there hoping to get an appellate issue out of it and, and we will see I know that, uh, Dina, you've been following this case uh, closely. Has your opinion changed at all? I, I know that I felt the prosecution had an incredibly strong case when they were putting their case on. I took a couple of steps back. I don't know if it changed my mind when the defense put their case on, but what are your thoughts of it? Mm-hmm. You know, this is just such an egregious crime, and you can yeah. argue whether or not you believe in the death penalty. But if it, if you are in Florida and the death penalty exists, you have to question what other crimes would it exist for other than this one. And the prosecution, I think, really showed this is the type of case you give the death penalty for. It is sad that he may have been born with like fetal alcohol syndrome. You know what the defense was saying? Did he ever have a chance in life? But the fact of the matter is a lot of people are born in really poor, difficult circumstances and they don't go and commit mass crimes. So I don't know if they really did enough to um, combat the kind of egregiousness of the crime. It is interesting, though, because I know there was a lot of discussion about like, gosh, these family members have to sit and watch all of this. You know, why is the prosecution necessarily going through all the gruesome details? You know, a lot of people were kind of reacting to that, you know, on social media or interacting with me about it. And we just talked about the Sandy Hook case. And for me, I thought it was interesting that these cases were kind of happening at the same time, because I thought, yes, their benefit here is is he going to get capital punishment or not? But the other benefit is all of this is now part of the public record. And those families will never have anybody say to them that this didn't happen. And I think there is like, again, like this public interest in having a crime like a lot of these times, if this happens, the perpetrator is also killed. And so there is no case. This is one of the few ones I can think of where there is an ability to go back and really put on the record and maybe just make it known to the families and to the world exactly what happened. And I hope as hard as it was for the families to have to sit through this, I hope they felt that kind of reckoning that I think happened that doesn't always happen in these cases. And hopefully they won't ever have anybody question whether or not how can you question it happening yeah. after all of this so to that i yeah. thought that was interesting that was happening at the same time no I, I i agree with you that's something i had not thought of but it maybe perhaps there was a some sort of catharsis that came out of this for the the family members to have had their moment to to have the world hear the kind of suffering that they've gone through and what their their family has experienced um one point i wanted to kind of touch on that you made uh I, I agree with you that if, you know, putting aside our, we could have a whole podcast on whether or not this country should have a death penalty or not, but putting that all aside, if there is any type of crime that would qualify for the greatest penalty that we have in this country, it would be this type of a crime. And something important to keep in mind is that the jurors who are sitting in this jury are not... Um, they do not run the the spectrum of of political thought on the death penalty. In other words, they've all been what's called death penalty qualified, meaning they've been asked during voir dire very specific questions on if you feel the death penalty is appropriate, would you vote in favor of it? And they've all been asked, and I, I sat through these types of um, voir dires before uh, when I was in the DA's office, and 
you'll come down to a juror and you'll say, listen, um, you're sitting back there and there's 12 of you and they need a unanimous verdict to say that the death penalty is going to be enforced in this case. And let's say you've seen all 11 of your uh, co-jurors say yes on the death penalty and now it comes down to you, the 12th juror, and you know that your vote could send this person to the to the death chamber or could put them in prison for the rest of their life and it's up to you but you feel that this is worthy of it would you be able to make that vote and it, it's a it's just it's a chilling kind of moment to hear these people kind of really search their soul to answer that question but what we do know is that everybody who's sitting on this juror has been able to say that yes they could do that if if it was they were called upon to do it so i agree with you in that if the prosecution has presented this case to them as you said that you could do this and this is absolutely the type of case where it, it should be done i think that the defense in this case has a very difficult road ahead of them and we will see how this all plays out i guess sooner rather than uh than what we were expecting now that we're we're not going to hear from another 40 something odd witnesses from the defense so we'll continue to watch it finally out of chicago illinois robert sylvester kelly r kelly was found guilty of six counts of federal by a federal jury in the R&B singer's hometown, including charges of production of child pornography and enticement of a minor to engage in sexual activity. Kelly was acquitted on an additional seven counts, which included conspiracy to obstruct justice and conspiracy to receive child pornography. Two co-defendants in the trial, Kelly's former business manager, Daryl McDavid, and Kelly's former assistant, Milton Brown, were acquitted on all charges. The pair were accused of co-conspiring with Kelly to rig the outcome of a previous criminal trial in 2008, which allegedly included video of Kelly sexually abusing a minor. Kelly was previously convicted on federal racketeering and sex trafficking charges in New York um, earlier. He is currently serving a 30-year prison sentence for those charges. Okay, first off, Dina, just, just what were your reaction to this? Did this verdict surprise you at all? It didn't. You know, he has, although this is a separate crime, I think that, um, you know, we're in a different error era, right? Post Me Too, I think jurors are more willing to believe. And although they tried to convict, you know, go to trial on this before, the, uh, the victim didn't testify, right? Or she said to the grand jury that it didn't happen. But she was willing to testify. I think with the video and the victim willing to testify, you had a completely different case. Uh, so I was not surprised that he got a convicted here. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because the prosecutors centered their case, uh, in this case, around a star witness identified only by the pseudonym Jane, who identified herself as the person in a 26-minute videotape that allegedly showed Kelly performing sex acts with an underage girl. In her emotional testimony, Jane, who's now 37 years old, said that the singer began having sex with her when she was just 15 and he was in his 30s and continued to do so, quote unquote, hundreds of times before she turned 18. You highlighted this as the kind of uh, the thing that moved the needle with this kind of powerful testimony and videotape to back it up and corroborate it. Do you think a conviction was all but inevitable in this case? Uh, 
I do. Exactly. And, and especially because of the time we're in, you know, people are willing to believe that maybe their once idol could have done something bad. I think in the past, celebrity was kind of a shield, but we're no longer in that space. And once you've taken away that kind of celebrity shield, the facts of the victim and the videotape would certainly have been enough to convict a regular person. And so why not him also? Yeah, yeah, and I'm gl glad you brought that up. We're talking about the the kind of cultural reckoning that we've had over the past few years. From from it, essentially, the world has changed to some extent uh, from 2008 when that first trial took place to to 2022 uh, with this trial, with that Me Too movement that you've referenced a couple of times. Um, what do you think uh, this means as far as 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 people feeling comfortable to accuse people in power and testify against people in power and hold people in power accountable. Hopefully we've gotten to the point where they are treated as if you are were not in power. I mean, somebody in power shouldn't have more accusations, false accusations against them, shouldn't be convicted more, but they should be treated just like everybody else. You know, if there's evidence against, strong evidence against you, you should be able to be convicted just like the neighbor who nobody knows their name. And I think there was a big disconnect before. People didn't want to believe that the person they saw on the movie or the person they listened to the songs could have done these awful things. But I think they should be treated just like anyone else. And actually, the jury in this case, uh, I think we're going to talk about that, but did treat him, I think, like in everyone else, because they didn't convict him on all of the charges. Yeah. I think they were very discerning about that. And they convicted him on this witness who they thought was very strong and the videotape that was very strong. So I think that in that respect, we could see that he got a fair trial. That's what you want. You want the celebrity to get the fair trial, like um, the neighbor to get the fair trial. Nobody to be treated worse or better than the other. It's a really, really excellent point is that you cannot say that this was just a juror's kind of knee-jerk reaction to a cultural movement when they were able to discern enough to, to find him guilty of some things, find him guilty of not guilty of other things, find his co-conspirators not guilty. So it's they 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 obviously went through the evidence. They, they came back fairly quickly after a long trial. It was only a couple of days of deliberation, but that does show some some thoughtfulness that they put into it. it 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 reminds me it's it's similar but very different but another case you know with the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard case that we talked about how what does that mean as far as the the cultural movement because you know here they found that someone who had accused uh, a person of power and and celebrity of really atrocious things they found that that person wasn't being truthful but at the same time that was a mixed bag verdict as well because they found him liable for for some defamation against her in some comments that he made and i thought and I'd like to hear your thoughts, is that also show kind of discernment on the part of the jurors that these cases are not really just, like I said, knee-jerk reactions, but it really is uh, kind of us coming to the idea that people need to be held accountable no matter who they are, and that doesn't necessarily mean throwing the book at them. Exactly. And I think this kind of goes to my point, which I love juries, right? I mean, people, I also sometimes get feedback of how can 12 people who don't know the law decide these things? Like, why right. do we do that? Shouldn't they be, you know, lawyers or maybe even the judge? But again and again, I find them to be so impressive in deciding, you know, the facts. That's what they're deciding. They're deciding the facts. They're applying the law. They're not deciding the law, right? The judge is going to decide what law they apply, but they're deciding the facts. And every regular person can decide the facts. And I think in the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard, they were discerning. They said, okay, every statement that had any any 
every statement that said either abuse or sexual allegation or sexual violence were all lies. But the one statement that didn't include abuse or sexual, you know, any of those kind of key abuse words, that one went to Johnny Depp. That was super interesting. I didn't think they were going to be uh, quite as um, focused on those facts as they were, and they were. And I think with the R. Kelly case, they didn't believe the one witness who's R. Kelly's defense attorney said, hey, this witness uh, you know, on the stand said she was 16, but there's a prior statement where she said she was 17 at the time and 17 is legal age, you know, in Chicago. And the lawyer did a great job of pointing out the inconsistent statement. And the jury said, hey, you know, if, if you're going to be inconsistent, we're not going to believe you. Your credibility is now at issue, which is which is very reasonable for the jury to have said. And they acquitted him on that charge. So I just think the jurors are great at like um, narrowing down those kind of issues and looking at the facts and and, yeah. and they did it here as well. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Really, really interesting thoughts, and and, and I loved hearing. Uh, what you had to what you what what was going on in your brain thinking about these cases um dina we appreciate having you on uh, again thank you so much for coming on this week where can people find out more about you they can follow me on social media my handle is ask dina doll pretty much across every platform twitter tiktok instagram youtube Fantastic. And I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ. You can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily sidebar. Sidebar.